If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great mysteries uh, of the 20th century, uh, what became known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. In fact, 62 years ago this month, maybe even 62 years ago today, in fact, that this occurred, the, the bodies of these nine Russian hikers weren't found until the end of February in 1959. But it was clear that, that something strange had happened that led to their death. And it has fostered all kinds of fascination over the years, in particular in Russia, obviously. Uh, the investigation was just reopened uh, two years ago, marking the 60th anniversary. New study out uh, just recently, though, suggests a, a um, somewhat more mundane but unusual explanation for what happened to these hikers. And we'll get into all of that. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon to talk about this, this case and the fascination with it after all these years. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Keith McCloskey. Uh, he's an author of numerous books, including two on this incident, Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident, and Journey to Dyatlov Pass. Uh, Keith McCloskey, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob, and a big shout-out to all our Canadian cousins. Well, and you're joining us uh, today from the United Kingdom, we should point out, and we appreciate that. Yeah. Um, just first of all, and we'll, we'll talk about this, this study, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about some of what's come out recently about this, but let's talk about your own interest and, and fascination in this story. You, you've traveled to this part in the Ural Mountains where this occurred. You, you've written two books about it, as we mentioned. What, what, what's it to you about this case? Well, it's... Uh, it's- for me, it's got to be the biggest mystery out there. It's a lot of people have their own pet mysteries, if you like. You know, the Bermuda tri- Triangle. You hear that from a lot of people, and uh, the Marie Celeste. Uh, um, and the, a big one, of course, is you know the Malaysian airline flight that disappeared. But for me, this is this really is the biggie because uh, there's so many possibilities as to what could have happened to them, but. Nothing answers all the questions. That's the problem. Whatever whatever theory you put forward, it doesn't satisfactorily put it to rest. And and that's also, I think, the problem with the new theory that's just come out. So let's talk about what happened, or at least what we know for sure. So there there were nine Russian adventurers, uh, seven men and two women. Apparently, all very experienced, so so they knew their way around. They knew what they were doing, and yeah. everything about it was very strange. What had happened to their tent was very strange. The, the way the bodies were found was very strange. Some of the injuries were incredibly strange. What stands out to you as as some of the the really bizarre aspects to this? Well, uh, the injuries, especially because. Um uh, the two of them in particular, they'd all, they all had injuries with blunt force trauma of various kinds, you know, one behind the ear. But the two that were worst affected had injuries as if they'd been in a, in a car crash. And you think, how the hell could that happen? Um, the others, not so much. Uh, the the, uh, 
the official autopsies uh, said that some of them had died of hypothermia, which is probably they were injured and um, the, the, you know they they were overcome by the cold. But uh, yeah. the, the other unusual thing about it is where the girl who had the car crash type injuries. There was a, a guy and a girl, but she uh, her tongue was missing and and her eyes. Uh, people have tried to explain that away with animals, but um, again, you know, a lot of people have said, well, they were under snow, the animals wouldn't have got to them, what type of animals would it have been? But that's one of the most peculiar things about it. So whatever aspect of it you look at, why did they leave the tent in temperatures that were was minus 27? Uh, I mean, I've stood on the spot where the tent was, and it's barely a hundred feet from the top of the ridge, so it, it couldn't have been a full-blown avalanche, if you like. This latest theory of the slab again is quite plausible, but um, it, you know, again, it doesn't answer all the questions. And the biggest thing about it all is the attitude of the authorities. The place, the whole area, it wasn't closed down as such. In those days, you needed a permit to get up there. Um, so what they did was they, they, the whole area was closed off for four years. They wouldn't give permits for anybody to go up there. So you think, well, why did they do that? It, it seems really peculiar. Surely they, they were on a, an official hiking expedition in the middle of winter. Lots of people did it. Uh, so why not just say, well, look, you know, something terrible's happened. Take more care. But they didn't. They, they, they closed it down. But they didn't close it down anywhere else in Russia or the USSR, as it was in those days. So I, f- I find the attitude of the authorities very peculiar, to put it mildly. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, you know, th- this is a story that I think, you know, people have followed right around the world, but it, it seems much mm-hmm. different in Russia, that this has been such a big deal over the years in Russia and all kinds of, of theories and conspiracy theories in Russia about what happened. Enough so that there was such a demand that they, they reopened the investigation two years ago, didn't they? They did, yeah. Well, um, it was uh, the Diatlov Foundation, and uh, I helped raise the uh, funds to get the case reopened. We, we, uh, we, they had about uh, two-thirds of the funds, and I did a GoFundMe for the balance so we could pay a lawyer. So we had another lawyer come on board to do it pro bono, and uh, eventually, they, to our great surprise, I have to say, they did uh, reopen the case on the basis that the relatives hadn't had a satisfactorily, you know, had, had a satisfactory explanation of what happened to their loved ones, which is true. You know, when you think um, an unknown compelling force, what the hell does that mean? That's what they died of. Um, the the, injury, the car crash type injuries, to me, suggest um, a kind of a, a military weapon and in the, uh, I mean, I, I came across this story because I'm a big sort of, uh, I've studied Soviet military history for many years. That's how I first came across it about 10, 10 years ago. And there's several military theories, but the Russians had a moratorium. I think they'd agreed with the, the USA at the time not to carry out any nuclear tests. But there's rumors it was all shifted up into the Urals. Because in those days, you didn't have spy satellites and spy aircraft were only just coming into usage, you know, with the U-2 at that time. So it was like hidden out of view. 
And the Russians had a rocket which had various experimental warheads that carried um, radiation in the warhead, liquid radiation. And that's another uh, peculiar thing about it is if these people had died in a, an avalanche, so-called, why was, were their bodies, at least of the, some of the bodies, why was their clothes tested for radiation? Right. There were uh, traces. Know, the there were traces of radiation found. There, there. Well, there were, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what, why would you do that if it was, yeah. you know, a big, big slab of snow? It's not the first. It's not the first thing you'd think of, is it? <laughs> no, and it, it's. I mean, clearly something unusual happened. So the idea that it was an unusual kind of avalanche that happened, I, I suppose, is is plausible, as you say. It maybe fits some parts, not so much others. Um, and getting back to the point about the tent, I mean, it clearly something set them off, right? Clearly they, they heard something, they were frightened by something, they were very desperate to get out of the tent. Is that what it seems? It is, yeah. There were slashes in the tent. Uh, one of the searchers had said he made bigger slashes in the tent to get inside, to, to have a look inside. But you must remember that when they found the tent, they didn't know they were dead they didn't find the, the first bodies for a couple of days. So that basically they found the tent and they thought, well, they've, they've left the tent for some emergency, but they're all still alive and all we've got to do is find them. But of course they were all dead, but they, they didn't know it at the time. But it looks like they left the tent in a hurry. But the first question then is the footsteps, the nine sets of footprints going down to the bottom to the tree line shows somebody walking at a walking pace, shows them all walking. There was They, they weren't running. They were in um, socks, bare feet, which, which again is pretty unusual. You know, you'd think they'd at least grab some shoes or some footwear to take. It, it's almost inexplicable as to why, if you felt there was danger there, you would walk away from it instead of running. And why all go in a line down to the tree line? Why not spread out? So, so that that was that's yeah. the first thing about it. And another thing I'd just like to say about the footprints, uh, coming back to this new theory, what they're saying is a slab of snow impacted the two worst injured. The, uh, a big slab of snow weighing, God knows, well, uh, however, I don't think there was a weight mentioned, but it hit them at a speed of se uh, seven meters a second, which is, uh, you know, a big lump traveling at about 21 feet a second and crushed the chest. So, and the effect on uh, the guy who had the worst injury, say, is as if he had lain down in a car park and a car had driven over his chest. So how would he have been able to walk two-thirds of a mile down, down to the tree line without somebody helping him? But what they're saying is that there was no signs of footprints close together as if somebody was helping somebody else. I mean, apart from anything else, I, I think well, I think you'll agree with me. If you went out into your car park tonight, fell over, and a car drove over your <laughs> chest, you probably wouldn't be able to go anywhere, no. let, let alone... I mean, it took me, when I, when I was there, it took me in... Uh, this is without the ice, obviously, but it was still you know, walking through lots of areas of rocks, loose rocks, but it took me nearly half an hour to get to the bottom. So... For anybody to do that with a crushed chest, it's, it's impossible. 
So where do you think this all goes from here? I, I suspect maybe the, the Russian government will be more than happy to have an explanation they can point to. Case closed. Let's move on. Well, they've done They're it. Obvious, they've right? done it. Yeah. They've done it. They, they've said it's an avalanche, and uh, that's the end of the matter. I mean, uh, I'm amazed they actually agreed for it to be reopened. But the, the, the whole thing is one of... You know, people might say, well, it's all conspiracy theories. Well, okay, but the, you, you, anybody looking at this case has got to admit that there's something weird about it. And the government haven't exactly fallen over themselves to say, we're going to get to the bottom of this come, you know, come hell or high water. But it's almost as if they don't want anybody looking at it. And there's been a lot of people looked at this, you know, as you say mm -hmm. yourself, there's people all over the world looking at it and some cleverer people than, than, than I have. And each person has their own theory and, but it, not one single theory answers all the questions. It, re right. it really doesn't. Uh, but yeah, I mean, me, look, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it no, runs the gamut, obviously. Yeah. Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I mean, the theories do run the gamut. I mean, there, there's some pretty outlandish ones, uh, you know, and sort of looking at all possibilities. But the, the idea that the, the, the Russian government knows more about it than they're letting on, that, that certainly seems plausible. And, and is that your thinking here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the, the deputy prosecutor, he, he's still alive, actually. He's, um, I think he's 96 or 97 this year. And quite lucid, although he's very frail now. He lives in Moldova. Um, but he was saying that uh, when when the um, final autopsy was, you know, was uh, done and presented to everybody and uh, they looked at it and he, he wanted to go back up there with a full team of people to have a good search around the place just to see what the hell had happened. He said, a deputy prosecutor of the USSR arrived in the city that day and closed the case down. And that says quite a lot. And he took, the other interesting thing, he took all the case files with him back to Moscow. So the case file, because this has been one of the long, I don't know, disputes, if you like, is where they think there is another original case file and that the case files are present in the uh, Sverdlovsk, oh, you know, in the Oblast prosecutor's office is a, a duplicate which doesn't tell the truth and that the originals were either destroyed or they're still in Moscow. But for somebody to pitch up, and you're not going to argue with the deputy gen general, <laughs> prosecutor general of the USSR, close, close the whole thing down. And I'm surprised that more people don't, uh, somebody said, oh, the ramblings of an old man. Well, he sounds pretty lucid. He sounded pretty lucid to me in the interviews he's given. So it, it does look as if there's some sort of a cover-up. So why would you cover it up? And the answer is an, an accident. Uh, the Russians have always been very good at covering up disasters, if you like, because it's, yes. but, well, no, nobody likes to admit their mistakes, do they? Isn't that true? Well, we'll leave it yeah. there. Uh, more at your website, yeah. keithmccloskey.com. And uh, you've also got a website specific to, to this and, and your books on, yeah. on the subject, dyatlov-pass-incident.com. It's been really great talking to you, Keith. Thanks again for making yeah. some time for could, us. Could I just give a shout-out to You've got a Dyatlov obsessive living in Calgary called Josh. Oh, is that right? I don't know. I don't know if he's <laughs> listening, but hello, Josh. All right. Well, hello to Josh. There so, you go. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, thank thanks again. All the best Thanks to you. Take care. All the best. All right, cheers. Bye -bye.
There you go. Keith McCloskey, uh, author of uh, Journey to Dyatlov Pass, also Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. And uh, he's been there himself, been, been studying this for years. So what happened? Snow slab avalanche. And the funny thing about that, too, is that the researchers who did the study on this unusual avalanche, it was something, for one of them, it was something that was tweaked in his mind by the movie Frozen. <laughs> no kidding. The movie Frozen sort of set them on this path, and they went to talk to the animators about the avalanche, the avalanche simulators they used to do the movie, and one thing led to another. Anyway, that's what got them on, on this, the idea of this unusual snow slab avalanche that might explain all of this. Not quite all of it, though. It's and questions will persist. All right. We are long in this segment here. We got to take a break. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.